So I invite you now to turn to Psalm 73. We're going to be reading uh, all uh, 28 verses. As we come to the psalm, let me just say that uh, uh, I owe a debt of gratitude to the uh, great pastor, theologian, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was the one who first, as it were, introduced me to this psalm from the standpoint of good and solid exposition, more than 30-some years ago, he wrote a book entitled uh, Faith on Trial. And uh, there's some insights that I still treasure that I gained from what he had to say. And it's hard to distinguish between those insights that I gained from him and anything I might have, uh, uh, by the Spirit of God and study, uncovered myself. But just to know that uh, so much credit goes to Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the work of the Holy Spirit, and then I would just encourage you, if you find this psalm, as we should find all of Scripture, but if you find the psalm and the message here uh, of any sense beneficial to you, that you would read the Master himself, Dr. D. Martin, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, benefit greatly by what he has to say. So Psalm uh, 73, beginning at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not troubled as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. My soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, 
Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Once again, let's pray. Father, we commit this reading of the word to you. We commit now the exposition of this word, praying for your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, to guide our thoughts, uh, to ensure that we are those who hear not with just a half-hearted hear, with half, the half-hearted hearing, but that we would truly hear with a desire to uh, learn, to be motivated, to obey. But we pray that we would be encouraged by your word, strengthened in all of the ways in which you would strengthen us. We pray that we would understand how good it is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him above everything else. And so we pray, may the story here uh, that we find in the psalm uh, be that which strengthens us, enables us to continue to live as you want us to live as Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to go directly to the main point this morning. And uh, what I want to say is this. Because God seeks us to worship him in spirit and in truth, he will sovereignly act to remove from us a heart that loves the world. Now, what I propose for you this morning is that we actually see that truth illustrated and lived out in the life of Asaph, the author of Psalm 73. This is his personal and autobiographical story. But you might ask, who is Asaph? Well, besides a dozen psalms that his name is attached to, uh, we know that he was a Levitical priest. Uh, we know he was a very significant person at the time that King David was returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem uh, to be placed once again in the tabernacle. We know that Asaph was one of David's chief musicians. He was a leader of the people of Israel in the worship of the one true God. We know he was a, a singer, a vocalist, as well as a player of instruments. And we know that his role as a worship leader was public and prominent. He was a recognized spiritual leader of Israel. And in addition to this, he was a seer, which is another term for prophet. So all of this makes his spiritual pilgrimage, the story that we see presented in this psalm, all the more significant because his pilgrimage actually illustrates this truth that because God does seek us to worship him in spirit and truth, God will sovereignly act to remove from us a heart that loves the world. Now, I want to take a, a moment here and just sketch the storylines of this psalm, and that's the outline that you see in terms of the materials presented for you. It, it begins with, uh, the very beginning of the psalm, begins with Asaph's premise and conclusion in verse 1. It, it moves into then a description of his crisis, his crisis of faith, what he was experiencing. Verse 15 hits a point where we can say, this is telling us about Esaph's restraint. And then after that, beginning at verse 16, we have what might be described as his epiphany, his spiritual awakening. Continues then afterwards with his return, that is his spiritual return. And finally, the last few verses we might describe as his renewal, the renewal of his full faith in the Lord. Now, what I want us to do is to actually move through Asaph's spiritual pilgrimage, uh, move through his story 
to see again how God seeks us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, verse 1. I call this both the premise and the conclusion, because it is both the premise and the conclusion. Uh, Asaph's message, of course, begins here, so this is the premise of his message. But it's also the conclusion of his message. That is to say, everything that he says, uh, this first statement is the alpha and the, the omega. It's the beginning and the end. And I credit D. Martin Lloyd-Jones for this insight. Uh, he is someone who has said that many psalms actually begin with the conclusion that the psalm reasons to. And for instance, a great example of that would be Psalm 32, one of David's uh, psalms of confession. It begins with the blessedness of the man whose sin is forgiven uh, and, be, and whose sin is covered, whose iniquity is forgiven, you know, Psalm 31, verses 1 and 2. And then it goes into the spiritual story. And so when you finish the spiritual story, you come back to realizing, well, what he said at the very beginning is the conclusion of David's experience of feeling the weight of sin, feeling the, the penalties of sin until the point that he comes to confess. And then he understands the blessedness of the man whose sin is forgiven and covered. So that's what I mean by premise and conclusion. So in the first place, as a premise. Asaph is stating the normative biblical truth that the normal biblical truth that begins his story. This is the framework of everything that he wants to say. This is what, what, what we would call his, his point of view at the point in which he actually enters into his crisis. It's also, though, the conclusion. Uh, remember that Asaph writes the story, this psalm, after his story. It's after the crisis has passed. It's after the, the crisis has worked its way through to its proper conclusion. So it states the place where he arrived at after his great struggle. He was able to say at the end of it all, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure and heart. It's the beginning of his story. It's the end of his story. It's the framework within which he speaks in order to teach the children of Israel. So the nature of verse 1 as a premise and as a conclusion is anchored then to this great truth about God. God is himself the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is good. Before you were born and after you die, God is good. And all during your life, God is good. The goodness of God toward his redeemed people has never changed. It's never waxed. It's never wavered. It's never waned. It's never been greater. It's never been lesser. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this needs to be the premise, as well as the conclusion, of everything we would go through in our lives as Christians. Now, beginning of verses, verse 2 and into verse 3, we have Asaph describing his crisis. Now, this is his crisis point of view. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph is quite candid as to what was challenging his faith. Uh, here is what became a problem to his faithful calling as a worshiper and a worship leader of the one true God. 
He acknowledges, he admits that it was envy. He became envious of how well the arrogant and wicked people were doing in this world. Now, he wasn't envious of their evil, but he was envious of their great possessions. He was envious of all their worldly prosperity. Now, of course, we should ask ourselves, what is this envy? What is envy, essentially? And, of course, the Bible would tell us it's the breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Exodus 20, 17, the Lord God says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, if we come to the New Testament, what Asaph stumbled over is accurately diagnosed in that passage that we've already read in our worship service this morning. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here I'll revert to the more traditional terminology that I learned so long ago, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and its desires is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So from this New Testament perspective, what we see is the actual nature of Asaph's crisis. Uh, that is, his, his envy of the wicked is actually a great exhibition of the love he had for the world. Asaph, uh, even as a spiritual leader and worship leader, had been falling in love with the world, which is why he envied the worldly prosperity. Now, I want to say something then about our point of view that this illustrates, because it's not just Asaph, but it's anyone who purports to be a Christian. When, when any one of us is gripped with any kind of vice, Envy is a vice. Coveting is a vice. Uh, from the whole spectrum of, of sins that seem to be so prominent in today's culture, whether it's envious of the successful all the way to what we hear too much about today, same-sex desires. When any human being purports to be a Christian is gripped by any kind of vice like this, he or she cannot see the world, cannot see God, cannot see others, cannot see himself according to the truth. Now please see this in Asaph. Please understand this, that this is the power of sin to deceive. So whether it's this evil triad that the Apostle John talks about, which covers, as I said earlier, most kinds of sin, if a person's heart has inordinate desires, desires that are wrong. He cannot see the truth about the world or about himself from God's point of view. Now, we continue to see this in what Asaph says in verses 4 to 14. He gives a three-point description of his point of view that was grounded and anchored in envy. Uh, the first thing he says and describes from verses 4 through 10 is the benefit of being wicked. He points out that, that wicked people are the most prosperous of all people. 
wicked people become wealthy and wealthier by their evil deeds. Their willingness to lie, to cheat, to steal, to oppress, to kill. If you go to verse 11, you can see that Asaph is indirectly speaking about the apathy of God. He's describing there uh, statements that might indicate, well, does God really care? Does God really know? Because wouldn't God do something if he did? Implicit in what Asaph reveals there is the, the apathy of God toward wickedness. And then verses 13 and 14. Zero in on them a little bit more closely. Asaph's point of view now is the uselessness of godliness. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. In essence, Asaph is saying, my godliness has not protected me from the evils of this world. But on the other hand, the wealth and prosperity of the wicked have certainly protected them. Now that's Asaph's crisis. This is where his faith is challenged. And as a key spiritual leader in Israel, how can he lead God's people? How can he himself personally worship God when his heart is filled with this point of view? Now, his story continues. In verse 15, we can call his restraint. Because we have a statement here in, in the example of, of Asaph and what he says about the incredible responsibility of the godly, especially those who are godly leaders, to guard their inner struggles and to keep them private. Now, I'm going to make a couple of statements here, and then I'm going to explain them. First, I'm going to say this. Spiritual leaders need to keep from speaking about their own inner struggles and doubts and questions. And along with that, spiritual leaders need to refuse to believe that their story is on par with the story of God. Now, I want to explain those statements out of Asaph's example. First, Asaph did not speak about his doubts. He did not convey his struggles. He did not share his thoughts. He did not make his problems in understanding everything that was going on with the prosperity of the wicked as some kind of platform to announce a deeper transparency and authenticity to the spiritual community he was the leader in. That is to say, even though Asaph knew he was a seer and a prophet, he did not take it upon himself to believe that his particular story his particular crisis and struggle in the midst of all of this was in any sense on par with the truth of God. Let me say it this way. Asaph would not use his experience to interpret the word of God. Asaph would not use that kind of hermeneutic to interpret the word of God. Because I feel this way, because I think this way, because I'm going through this, therefore, this must be the way it is with God in the world. He absolutely not only refused to go there, he refused to say so. Verse 15, he says, 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, this is what he's saying. If I have been transparent with those I lead spiritually, if I had spilled the beans about my struggles, if for the sake of honesty and integrity and authenticity and transparency, I had spoken about my thoughts that God seems to be apathetic to the evil that rich people seemingly get away with, I would have betrayed the generation of your people. Asaph is saying that it would have been a spiritual betrayal to have been open about his struggles. It would have been a spiritual betrayal if he had chosen to play out his struggles on the stage of the community theater with the people of God as his audience. Because consider the nature of that betrayal. Asaph held a position of incredibly great responsibility as a leader of worship, as a writer of psalms, as a recognized prophet. If he had spoken of his struggles during the time of his struggles, he would have given the people of God a false understanding of the world, a false understanding of God's relationship to the world, and thus false teachings about God. And that would have been a tremendously serious betrayal. And that is why spiritual leaders must refuse to believe that their particular story of their particular struggles is ever on par with the story of God. They must refuse to speak about their own inner doubts and struggles and questions while they are in the midst of those questions. Because the greatest of danger is that they will lead the people of God astray, and that would be a betrayal. Now, some of you might be saying, wow, you're really harping on this in a very, very strong way. Yeah, I am. Because it's a serious problem. It has become a huge problem. It is far too common for spiritual leaders in, in, in our day and age within the evangelical church to pour out on social media their new struggles, their new questions, and their new points of view. According to Asaph, this is a betrayal of God and a betrayal of his people. Now, it's at this particular point that Asaph now comes to a point of new understanding. So verse 16 to verse 20, we can describe this section as Asaph's spiritual epiphany. This is what moves to the reset of Asaph's faith in God. So beginning with verse 16, Asaph says that when he sought to understand all of this, that is, why those who are doing evil are actually prospering and, and why the faithful like himself have challenging and difficult lives in comparison. He says, this is a wearisome task to think about. Other translations say, this is troubling in his eyes. This is painful for him. This is even oppressive to him. But then he goes on in verse 17 to point out that this, this state of mind lasted until, quote, he went 
and to the sanctuary of God. This is what changed Asaph's point of view. This was the place of his spiritual epiphany. Now, the sanctuary of God here refers to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And we know in terms of the history of Israel, this is the very place where God chose to dwell with his people. Uh, the tabernacle, the tent, the, 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 the tent of meeting was also called the place of his abide, abiding. It, it was his home. So to go into the sanctuary, which as a Levitical priest, he would be doing in the course of his priestly duties, was to go into the very presence of God. Now, it's in that place, God's presence, that Asaph comes to a point of discernment. And so in verses 18 and 19, Asaph describes what he came to understand. Basically, it's this, that the prosperity of the wicked has not really made them secure. Their lives are actually lived in slippery places. God actually brings about their downfall. In fact, they will fall quickly. They will be destroyed in a moment. They'll be swept away utterly by their terrors. In verse 20, he goes on, Asaph goes on to make a comparison here. He compares the supposed security and safety of the wealthy wicked to the experience of a dream. When a man wakes up, what is seen to be substance and reality suddenly dissipates. So it's going to be when God is aroused. They will be like phantoms of dreams. God will be aroused. God will act. And they will dissipate and disappear. How Asaph receives this discerning understanding, uh, how it comes about during his time in the sanctuary, he doesn't really tell us. Now, because he was a seer and a prophet, uh, to think that at that point God might have given him some special understanding, some special insight, or perhaps, or possibly a revelation, or even a vision. None of those things are impossible. But it's not possible for us to know exactly how. However, we do know this. Asaph's epiphany is that which took place such that he went from his point of view to God's point of view. And that's what's crucial to know. Asaph met with God, <clears throat> and he came away with God's point of view. <clears throat> now, Matthew Henry at this point essentially says, with respect to every Christian, we have the word and we have prayer. And that is how we go into the sanctuary, into the very presence of God. And it's with the word of God and it's with prayer that we can come to know the mind of God on those things that God would be pleased to reveal to us. Now, Asaph's point of view is this. The wicked will face a day of judgment. Uh, God is not apathetic. Though God may be delaying the execution of his justice now, the wicked will never escape. Uh, <clears throat> and therefore, it's not useless to ever think that Serving God is vanity. Never useless to think or to live in faithful service to God. We come then to verses 21 to 24, where Asaph continues to describe his return, his return to the correct point of view, his return in terms of his relationship with God. So verses 21 to 22, 
Asaph acknowledges where he had been in a struggling faith. In fact, this is an incredible description of, you know, back in verse 2, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. You read this book, verse, and it looks like almost. It looks like you really did stumble because he says that his soul was embittered. He was pricked in his heart. He was brutish and ignorant before God. That's pretty serious. But then he goes on with this wonderful, contrasting, connective word here, verse 23. Nevertheless, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph says to God, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. This is an expression of an amazing truth. Because Asaph essentially is saying this, God, I left you. My heart and my soul turned away from you. I was no better than a brute beast in the way I thought toward you. I left you, but you never left me. And that is how and why Asaph returns. All the time, God was holding on to him. Now, I hope, brothers and sisters, you will see a tremendous amount of comfort at this point in Asaph's story. The child of God who's truly a child of God may have many deep struggles with respect to the faith. But if Christ is genuinely your Lord and Savior, God holds on to you. God keeps you close. Even when you do not know that he is, even in the midst of the depths of your struggles, God is holding on to you. And God is guiding you with his counsel, even when you, as the believer, do not even understand it at all. And then we come to the conclusion of this psalm, his full renewal. Verses we should read again. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Now, what we have in verses 25 to 28, as we have Asaph totally cured of his envy and jealousy of those who are prosperous and evil in this world. In fact, it's not just the evil prosperous, but he's no, no longer even... Uh, uh, prone to be jealous of the godly who are prosperous. He, he is so renewed in his faith because of his renewed vision of God. And verse 25 is such a remarkable statement. 
In essence, Asaph is saying, I look to heaven and you are the only one I have there. And then he looks to earth and says, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know, we've mentioned before that the, the words heaven and earth and scripture are often put as a pair that forms what in terms of figurative language is called a mirrorism. A mirrorism is any time two or three terms are used together in such a way that they express totality of things, the totality of what could be. And so here we have uh, Asaph saying, look at all of heaven. You, you are the only one there. Look at all the earth. You are the only one there. Look at the whole totality of all creation. God, there is nothing else that I desire besides you. And verse 26, in more earthly terms, Asaph says that God is his portion. And that word portion there was a common word used in a variety of ways, but foundationally it would refer to a plot of land, uh, someone's patrimony. Uh, in Israel, the foundation of one's wealth and security. It's not the land. It's God who is his portion. And now from this point of view, Asaph no longer envies uh, the prosperity of the worldly rich because that prosperity, that treasure is temporal. It will vanish. And those who are trusting in that kind of wealth will vanish under God's judgment. But Asaph has in God his treasure, his wealth, his strength, his portion forever. In verse 28, Asaph has now reached the place, now reached the place where he can tell his story. Now he can share his testimony. Now he can say to the people of God, uh, in spite of what I went through and because of what I went through, look at all that I have learned. Truly God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. It is good to be near God. I can speak of the works of God because God knows and I know that God is my refuge, my strength, and my portion forever. Here's the lesson. It is a love for the world and all that is in the world that divides and separates our heart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Every trial, every temptation, every struggle, every doubt, every lapse of faith, every sin has one diabolical design to separate you from, to take you away from your purpose, and that is to worship God in spirit and in truth. To substitute any possible point of view for that point of view that we find in Christ Jesus, who died to redeem us, that we might worship and serve the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that you would enable us to reflect upon Asaph's story, uh, to realize what is the Alpha and the Omega of his experience. To know that he began uh, being able to say, 
uh, truly you are good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. And to be able to conclude that the nearness, your nearness was his ultimate, unchangeable, uh, absolute anchor in terms of good. And to know, Lord, that we too uh, go through this life. We have our ups and downs. We have our doubts. We have our struggles. But to know, Father, that never are our experiences and struggles uh, ever anything that would, in, in some sense, uh, contravene the truth of your word. And so we would pray, Almighty God, that you would keep us holding fast to you. You would root out of us any love of the world that we have so that we can live for the reason for which Christ redeemed us, that we might worship the true and living God in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name.